This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. People don't understand how much they care and how much they're working with the family and don't want to disappoint the family, that they are invested in this case. And it means so much to them that they're able to do justice for the victim. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, as well as the co-host of the new show, Buried Bones, both on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Jerry Williams is a retired FBI agent, and she wrote a book called FBI Myths and Misconceptions. She also has a podcast called FBI Retired Case File Review. Jerry has a unique perspective as a former agent and a woman of color. In this episode, she helps me break down the Polly Class case from the FBI's point of view. What are your qualifications? What gives you the right to write a book about debunking myths about the FBI? Not only was I an FBI agent for 26 years, but in the last five years of my career, I was the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. And that meant that I was responsible for providing the public and the news media with information about what the Philadelphia office was doing. I also was responsible in designing projects and programs that created a positive perception of the Philadelphia office. And of course, I worked with our headquarters doing all of that too. So I really learned how important it was that the public had a good perception of who the FBI was and what the FBI did. Was it challenging to be a woman of color wearing an FBI badge? I have always been honest and admitted that during the first four years of my FBI career, I wondered if I would be accepted. There were a number of issues that happened that I found disturbing. And by the time I got to my fourth year, I was wondering if it was the right place for me. And I was actually not just thinking about quitting, but I took some active measures into trying to see if there was another job that I could go to that paid as well. Wow. <laughs> Luckily, things happened that year in 1986. I came in in 1982. That really made me determined to stick it out. So just talking about current events briefly, do you feel caught in the middle a little bit being a person of color with Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening with law enforcement versus, you know, obviously you are part of the FBI culture. That has to be difficult sometimes. Yes. Not only am I a member of the FBI culture, but we consider ourselves investigators, part of law enforcement. And so I do believe that law enforcement is necessary, but also as an African-American, 
I know, I can see that there is injustice and I can see that our court systems are not necessarily fair when it comes to people of color. And so, yes, there are many times when I may see people in the law enforcement community looking at a case that is in the media and saying, oh, you know, the police officer did nothing wrong and this guy should have not resisted and, you know, on and on and on. And and I'm screaming, like, what are you talking about? Look at the video. And so, yeah, there are times when there is a pull and, you know, that can be somewhat awkward and difficult at times and, and really hurtful at times. When I read or hear what my colleagues are saying, sometimes it is just hurtful. There's no other word to describe it. Well, I think you have a unique perspective. So I'll I'll really be interested in hearing you help me break down the polyclass case. Let's go back, though, to the book that you've written, which is the FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which we have a lot of in our audience. So this is perfect (laughs) for them. So tell me, what is the goal of the book? What are the myths that we even have about the FBI? Well, I have to say that the whole idea for the book developed from the podcast. So I have a podcast where I exclusively interview retired agents. And after the first year, I was noticing that there were many cases that we were reviewing in which we always said, like, that's not how they show it on TV (laughs) or that's not what the public thinks. And just really kind of looking at some of those cliches and misconceptions that people have. And I just started kind of taking notes on what they were. And I did two podcast episodes about those cliches and misconceptions. And then one day someone said to me, you know, this is a book. Why don't you write a book? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to do that because I'm a big true crime podcast listener And a lot of times I hear people asking questions or maybe making observations that I know are inaccurate Mm. or they may not truly understand how investigations work. Mm -hmm. And so the book has a good place, fits perfectly in what I'm doing now. I have to tell you, that's why I try to keep speculation on my part down to a minimum because I'm a journalist. I do research. I know what I know. I know what I've done research in. But that's why I talk to people like you and Paul Holes and other experts out there who have worked these cases from the inside. So let's talk about your career just a tiny bit in the FBI. You were primarily white collar. That is correct. So I spent most of my career on an economic crime squad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) It sounds exciting and boring at the same time. (laughs) Oh, but it was exciting. It wasn't boring. It really is fascinating. It would be things like Ponzi schemes, advanced fee frauds, telemarketing scams, and embezzlement. When you talk about an elderly couple having their life savings stolen, and now in their elderly age, they have no money and no income, and the life that they dreamed of in retirement has been taken away from them. That's violence that really hits that elderly couple and you know their family members. And it's just fascinating to me the things that people say to themselves to make it okay to steal other people's money. It really is. It's, it's fascinating to me. So you retired and you started bringing these people on. You started bringing these FBI agents. And someone you brought on had worked on the Polly class case, right? That's correct. When people ask me, what's your favorite episode that you've recorded? The Polly class case review 
with retired agent Eddie Fryer was the case where I realized that I was doing more than just a true crime podcast. This was a way of really showing the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does and really getting all of those misconceptions, just throwing them out the window because Eddie Fryer really showed his emotions and how important it was for him to work this case. And we talked for over three hours. And after we finished, I just sat back in my seat and I said, wow, he shared everything. He poured it out there. And this is really different for listeners to be able to hear it from the investigator's side. What a terrible case. And I think the majority of the audience is going to know at least some of the details of the polyclass case. And it's always upsetting to me. I'm a mom and it's hard to recount the case. So let's just kind of lay out because I'm not 100% sure when the FBI comes in on the case. But can you start with how does this whole story even start with Polly? And she's at a sleepover, right? In 1993. She's at a sleepover at her own home. She's hosting her two friends. And later in the evening, it's about 10.30 p.m., she opens her bedroom door to go out to get something. And there's a man in the hallway. And he comes into their room. He has a knife. He tells all the girls not to scream or he'll slit their throat. And he ties them up and then takes Polly. And so the girls go out and notify Polly's mother. And then Polly's mother calls 911. About maybe an hour or so later, the FBI learns about this abduction and they call into the Panaloma, California Police Department offering assistance. Is that normal that quickly? I guess so. I mean, if there's witnesses and she was taken and this was not a runaway, that just seems very fast to me for the FBI to be involved. Not in a child kidnapping. Okay. So for an adult, there are different procedures that need to be followed before the FBI can get involved in the case. And even when they do, it is at the invitation of the local police department. And so if there are no reasons to believe that there is any type of federal jurisdiction uh, or federal violation, the FBI just can't become involved in a kidnapping, right. whether it's an adult or a child. It has to be at the invitation of the local police department. But when it comes to a child, that can be done by just a simple phone call. And in this particular instance, the local police department said, Absolutely, yes. Great. Because when you have a smaller police department, why not have more people helping you and providing assistance? And so they told Eddie Fryer, you know, who made that phone call, yes, we would value your assistance in this matter. Are the California State Police involved at this point also? Are they triangulated into all of this? I know they become involved in the investigation and it becomes a sort of a task force of all of these local agencies, the state police and the FBI all working together because they understand the importance of solving this case as soon as possible. And I think that's probably the first cliche. It's actually the second cliche in my book, but it's one of the first ones I want to talk about. And that is the cliche that the FBI doesn't play well with others. You see that so many times yeah. in books and TV shows and movies, and, and you hear it even on the news. And they Bigfoot in, and yes. this is our case, and if there's anything federal about it, we're taking over. Yes, I'm very aware of that cliche. That's not a cliche. That's true. 
it's not a cliche because these agents and the local police departments have been working together for years. Hmm. They know each other. They're going to in-service training. Maybe even we use their firearms range, depending on where the office is. We're always working. Members of their department are going to the FBI's National Academy. There are relationships that have been formed that are based on mutual respect. And to think that you're going to have an FBI agent working in an area that he doesn't know these people, that they don't already know him or her, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to think that those relationships have not already been cemented is just ridiculous. The reason I picked this poly class case is because it really shows how it works when it works well. Okay. And the great thing about this case, and again, the reason I used it as an example, is the FBI really was almost the primary investigative agency in this. There were all these other agencies working, but as far as collecting the evidence and sending the evidence off and coordinating the different interviews and the tip line, all of that was done by the FBI. But at the very end, this case was prosecuted at the state level Hmm. with absolutely no problem from the FBI because Polly Class was found just a few hundred miles away from home. She had not crossed any state lines. Her body wasn't found on federal property. There was just nothing there to provide a federal jurisdiction. And so it was prosecuted by the state. And nobody in the FBI had any issue with that, even though so many agents and so many resources had been used in investigating that case. Well, let's catch up with where we are right now. So it is October 1st, 1993 in Petaluma, California. Polly Class is 12 and she has two friends who are spending the night at her house. A man breaks in, takes a knife from the house, threatens the friends, ties them up, takes Polly. She is gone. The mom reports it. Petaluma police call the FBI and ask for help. What happens next? Eddie Fryer and a few other agents meet them at the crime scene. Once he realizes that this is probably a stranger abduction and not a parental custody fight, Mm -hmm. his first question to the local police is, can we use the FBI's evidence response team? Can they come in and collect the evidence? And of course, this is back in 1993 when a lot of the smaller police departments don't have, you know, a crime scene analyst to come in. And so that's one of the first things that they say, yes, let us use that FBI resource. Mm -hmm. And so the FBI's evidence response team does come in and collect fingerprints. They collect the ligatures that were used to tie the girls up. They, you know, look for palm prints. They collect all of this evidence and then they immediately send it to the FBI laboratory for analysis. Another thing that the FBI has a very strong surveillance team. And so as they gather suspects, then the surveillance team can be used to follow these people and to gather as much information as they can about them. Agents come in and they help the local police with neighborhood investigations, knocking on every door, Hmm. asking, you know, what did you see? Anything suspicious? And so already the technical resources and the manpower resources of the FBI are being used in this case. 
what did they gather up until that point? So they concluded stranger abduction. They eliminated anyone within the family or anyone the family might have known. But she is gone. What do they do next after they're done knocking on every door and all of this stuff has been sent off to the lab? What do you do then? Well, the thing that you do is to request the assistance of the public. The investigators, really at that point, they have a sketch. The two girls that were able to see the subject were able to provide some type of identification. And so they have a suspect sketch. But basically, they don't have much else. And so their responsibility now is to get the public to provide information, to provide leads for the investigators to go out on you know, as they gather the information, trying to find out what happened, what somebody saw. And so that's what they begin to do. They do hear about a white car being in the area that neighbors hadn't seen before, but really there's just not a lot. And the leads come in. I think he told me that there were over 60,000 leads that came in. And out of those leads, they were able to narrow it down to 12,000. So 60,000 tips narrowed down to 12,000 leads. And they checked out every single one of those leads. Somebody called in, they thought they saw something. This occurred in California. Even if the person said they thought they saw Polly in New Jersey, a lead was set and somebody, an agent in New Jersey, ran that down. And that, again, is one of the advantages of asking for FBI assistance, it's going to be very, very difficult for a local police department to run down leads in other states and other counties and other cities. They just don't have the manpower or the time to do that. And by bringing on the FBI and asking for FBI assistance, that's something that we do on a regular basis and we can go ahead and make that happen. And so for the next 60 days, that's what they do. They're just taking in leads. Everyone is getting very frustrated that they're not finding more information. They did have a few suspects that look good, but didn't pan out. And so they just continue. And this is another misconception or cliche that I'd like to bring up. And that is a lot of times you hear about a case and you're thinking that one agent, in this case, Eddie Fryer, is working this case alone. Hmm. You know, that's how it's sometimes perceived, even on true crime TV shows. And there are hundreds of local, state, and federal agents and investigators out there working on this. It's definitely a team effort to get as many people looking for Polly and trying to address some of these tips and leads that are coming in. What's interesting is if you look at this crime, you have a stranger who's come in who picks up the weapon at the scene. He's not carrying the weapon that we know of, but he picks up the knife at the scene, threatens two people, takes someone. This seems very well organized, but also not well thought out at the same time. 93, this is about 20 years after the FBI created the Behavioral Science Unit. Are they bringing in FBI profilers at this point? Yes. And the thing about this case, at the same time this abduction investigation is going on, the San Francisco office, which covers this particular area, is in the middle of the Unabomber investigation. Oh, gosh. And so, yeah, so they actually have profilers on staff who've been assigned temporary duty in San Francisco They also have a rapid start computer analyst 
program that's going on. Because when you have all these leads coming in, you know, it's difficult to just write them up on paper and put them in a file. I and mean, remember, everybody didn't have desktop computers in 1993. And so this is a computer system that helps to gather this information and make it readily available with a few keystrokes. So if a name comes up, you can find out, oh, wait a minute, two other people brought this name up. And so one of the good things that happened with this case is that they were able to borrow some of those resources that had been brought in for the Unabomber case to use on the polyclass abduction investigation. So it's a big mess. They've gotten so many leads. And despite the manpower of the FBI, I'm sure they're just drowning in bad information, looking for a kernel of good information. What is the next big thing that happens within the 60-day period? Well, unfortunately, nothing is really happening in that 60-day period. And everything is happening. They're getting these leads. And of course, each one, they're thinking this could be it. And then it isn't it. But on the 58th day. There is a woman who calls in to the police department because she's looking around her property. She's in a rural area and she comes across a strange scene, some red tights, some underwear, a used condom, and some things that look like rope. And she just thinks this is quite odd. And then she recalls having to call the police 60 days, 58 days before that, because there was a man on her property. Hmm. And she's wondering if this is connected and what this stuff is. And so she calls the police. When the police arrive, they look at the evidence. They're not sure what it is. Was it just some kids out there having sex? You know, what is this? They don't touch the scene except for maybe a few items and they take it back into the local PD. And that's where they make the connection. They hear what she's saying about a man being on her property. They realize it was the same day, Hmm. the same evening that Polly went missing. And so they call in one of the people that is on the task force. And when he sees the white material, the white rope-like item, he knows that it is very similar, if not exactly like the ones that he saw at the crime scene, because he was one of the investigators there that night. And so he calls retired agent Eddie Fryer and says, get down here. I think we have something. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The most important thing about this discovery is the fact that this woman had called the police on this man she saw trespassing on her property. And they come out and they talk to him. They ask him what he's doing there. 
They take down his information. They look at his car, which is a white car, and they gather all the information and then they let him go. Hmm. As this polyclass investigation is being developed, they don't put together the fact that they had pulled this man over, had detained him temporarily that same night, and that his reasoning for being there didn't make any sense. And they didn't notice that the one flyer, that photo that the girls had someone pulled together, really did look like this guy. And so 58 days go by before their report is pulled and they're called in and they realize that this guy probably, chances are so strong that he was the one who abducted Polly Class. You've got this report and right up the hill from where they found him and detained him and questioned him was where the property owner had discovered these items. That day, the agent gets on a plane flies him to the FBI laboratory, and they make a match. The items that were found up on the hill have the same DNA, and they appear to be similar to the items that were recovered from Polly Class's bedroom. So this suspect in that day could have been caught or investigated a little bit more and wasn't. So he was in the wind for 58 days until this came together. So tell me why, I'm interested just in general, why do you not name somebody who's already been convicted? Do you always do that? I don't always do that. But for me, we have started to look at some of these killers, murderers, rapists, almost as celebrity monsters. And although I understand in telling a story and telling a complete story, people want to know why this person did what they did. And, you know, knowing their name and knowing their background is part of gathering that information. And so I don't have a problem with others. But for me, in telling the investigator side, I don't necessarily find it helpful to name them. On my website, I have his name. I have the one at Flyer. I guess it's something just in me that I I don't like to say their names. No, I respect that. Absolutely. And I think we talk about this often where respecting the victims is the most important thing and not glamorizing the killer. And I think there's a difference between sorting out why someone did something Can it be prevented? What can we learn versus just glorifying someone? So we'll stick with killer. So now finally he is arrested. The killer is arrested. Is that right? That is right. I do want to go back just a little bit to talk about what was going on with retired agent Eddie Fryer Mm -hmm. during this 58-day investigation because it comes back to another cliche about the FBI or about investigators, and that is that they're unemotional. They are like robots, and they just go out and investigate the case. This is the point really where I said to myself, this is more than just a true crime interview, because during the interview at several times, Eddie Fryer gets so emotional that he could hardly speak. Hmm. In investigating this case, during those 58 days, he took no days off. He just worked and worked and worked. And at one point, he realized that he was really breaking down emotionally. So I like to talk about this because I want people to understand that 
especially when they're criticizing investigators and what are they doing and are they doing anything? A lot of times they're sacrificing their own mental health, their own physical health, their family relationships, a lot of things in trying to get these investigations down. And so the fact that people don't understand how much they care and how much they're working with the family and don't want to disappoint the family, that they are emotional. They are invested in this case. And it means so much to them that they're able to do justice for the victim. How much do you think that media pressure and public pressure influences specifically the FBI? It must just be tremendously stressful for agents on a huge case like this. It is definitely stressful because we all know it all rolls downhill. Mm -hmm. And so if the public is demanding, why isn't something happening? And of course, something is happening. We just can't tell you what's going on because it would hurt the investigation. And and for the integrity of the investigation, they've got to hold some information back. But the public is demanding. And then the mayor of that city is demanding, what's going on? What's going on? And then the police commissioner is demanding, what's going on in the U.S. Attorney's Office and FBI headquarters and the head of the office and then your supervisor and At the very end, all of that pressure is being applied to the case agent and the investigators on the case. Hmm. It is an added stressor for what is already a stressful situation, especially when you're trying to hopefully find a 12-year-old girl before she is killed. And then you have all of this external pressure too. At some point, it does take a toll. You know, at some point, all of that evil and violence and horror and trauma is all in their head. And if there's not a way to release that and to deal with it and talk about it, then it can be very harmful to an investigator or an agent. Paul Holes, who was a retired cold case investigator, talked about the mental toll that these cases have all taken on him. And it must be tremendous. It is traumatizing for everyone, of course, for the family members. I'm going to assume that Polyclass's family was relieved that the suspect was caught and there seemed to be some definitive DNA evidence to link him, but they are still missing Polly. Now, that's the thing about these types of investigations, you immediately feel elation. We got him. We found him. You know, we got the guy. And then immediately that roller coaster drops to the very lowest point when you realize that she's dead. Yeah. And she's not coming back. And that now, as an investigator, that information has to be passed on to a family who for 58, 60 days have been hoping beyond hope that she's going to be found and brought home. Do we think that when his car was in a ditch that night and the homeowner, you know, saw it and and all of this, was Polly dead at that point? Do they know? I asked that of Eddie Fryer, and he said that the subject told them that she was still alive, that she was up on that hill, that he told her to be quiet and that she was still alive, but he doesn't believe him at all. The thought is that Polly would not have just sat up there on the hill seeing these police officers with their bubble lights rolling, you know, through the night and not have called out and said anything, no matter what 
he had threatened her to do because safety is right down there with them. The fact that her underwear were left behind and there was a used condom left behind indicated that he had already done the sexual assault and most likely had killed her. So at what point do they locate Polly's body? Is it the killer who leads them there? Yes, it is. They have to really appeal to his, I hate to use the word humanity when we're talking about a sexual sadist, but you know, to, to really give them an understanding of, we just need to know. It's already been done. You're already here. The family needs to know where is Polly Class? Where is her body? And they were actually able to convince him to take them to where he had buried her. So they find her body. How do you think the FBI fared here in the public eye? Do you think that people recognize the immense contribution that the FBI had in figuring out, number one, who the killer was, and number two, getting him to disclose where her body was? I don't know if they do. And I know from talking to Eddie Fryer, the case agent from the FBI side, he could care less Hmm. whether or not the public knows. I reached out to him when I found out that he was involved in this case and asked him to provide a case review, and, and he did so. But he certainly gives credit to all of the different agencies that were involved. And again, he was able to testify in the state trial. The FBI, people from the laboratory testified in the state trial. All of our investigators who were a part of interviews and different surveillances and the arrest, all of that testified. But the fact that this is known as a state investigation, I think is he's, he's fine with it. Hmm. You know, he knows the work that we've done. And, and the bottom line is being able to bring justice to Polly and her family. Why do you think it's important to bust these myths, these false facts? Why does it matter if the FBI doesn't care what the public thinks of them? They're doing their job and they're working really hard, but does it really matter that people know the truth about how they work in the background without recognition sometimes? Absolutely, it matters, especially, you know, what's going on in the news. Our country is very divided and the FBI is right there in the middle being pulled into politics like it has never been done before. And I think it's very important for people to see the hard work that the FBI is doing, the type of things the FBI does, the commitment, the sacrifices that the FBI is involved in. And the reason is because an FBI agent has no idea who he's going to have to call, who he's going to have to talk to. And when he or she reaches out to a particular witness, if that witness has been reading a particular book or TV show or watching the news, that could affect the way they cooperate. Okay. And so it's very important that that phone call that's made or that knock on the door that's made, that the people behind that phone call, who answered the phone call, the people behind that door feel a respect for the FBI and have a positive perception and believe that the FBI is fair and is there to get the facts. So what is the number one, do you think, misconception about the FBI? 
that it just doesn't play well with others, or it's a bureaucracy, the feds, the red tape, and they only care about the high-profile cases? I think that probably in, in today's atmosphere of people being very tied into true crime, the biggest misconception is that the FBI doesn't care about the smaller cases. And that's why I brought this case up, because the most important thing to understand is most murdered and missing cases are not part of the FBI jurisdiction, Hmm. are not part of the federal violations. That in order to take part in some of these cases, the FBI has to be invited. And when you have a larger police department, they may not need the FBI's help. They may have the manpower and the resources and everything that they need to handle the case. Then you may have a smaller department and for some reason that chief of police wants to get reelected if it's an election type situation or they don't want to give up any power and they don't reach out and ask for FBI assistance. And again, when I talk about FBI assistance, I'm not talking about the FBI coming in and taking over a case because at the bottom line, again, most missing and murdered investigations are going to be prosecuted by the state. We can't make something a federal violation if it's not. It's not going to be prosecuted federally, but the FBI can offer manpower, resources. One of the biggest things in a case like this is the publicity. The one-it flyers, which come with reward money and things like that. But it's not a choice of the FBI about whether or not they get involved. I know there was a lot of negative talk when it came to the Gabby Petito case. Her body was found on federal property. That became an FBI case. And so when people say, well, the FBI did that one, well, it was an FBI violation. It was an FBI jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody just found down the street in a small town or or even a big city somewhere. There is no federal violation. And so I think in talking about this case, that was one of my main purposes, even though it wasn't my case, I wasn't involved in it. I wasn't the FBI at the time, but I was all the way over in Philadelphia working white collar cases. But I wanted to talk about this one because it really shows how the FBI works well with others, how the FBI uses task force concept, allowing local, state, and federal agencies to work together and share information, how a jurisdiction works, how something may not necessarily end up being prosecuted federally, but could be prosecuted by the state with the FBI agents participating, and the fact that an agent isn't working this case alone. They're having all of these people, even from their own agency, participating and providing resources and manpower. And the most important thing is just the personal sacrifices that agents and investigators make when they work these high-profile cases and just cases where time is of the essence, where there's a ticking time bomb of trying to rescue a young child in a situation where they know the longer it goes, more likely than not, that child is not going to be recovered alive. And the polyclass case 
is such a tragic story. This one young woman who had such a bright future ahead of her, when she died, it just created this ripple effect. And I think, as you said, affected so many people, her family, the FBI, all the agents, everyone who was working on this case. So the lessons learned from this, I think, are pretty evident. And I appreciated hearing this point of view. We don't often hear a lot of true crime cases just about the law enforcement's point of view. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. And, you know, my tagline is that I'm on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does. So I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to get the message out. I actually have 20 cliches and misconceptions that I go through in the book. So there's a lot more that true crime fans can learn about what they might think that's wrong about the FBI. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Harold Schechter on Hell's Princess, Belle Gunness. The one thing about Belle that's very interesting and also ultimately a little unnerving is that she appeared to have a genuinely powerful maternal instinct Hmm. and she always wanted to have kids. She somehow persuaded this friend of hers to turn this child over to her and Belle raised her until she was 16, at which point she decided to kill her. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold War Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.